you can take your copy of God's Word and go ahead and join me over in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. If you were here last week, what you will recall as we look through the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 5 is Jesus is trying to answer the question for his disciples. Hey, what does it mean? What's it look like to be a disciple, to be a Christ follower? Answering the really clear, plain question like, what's it mean to be a Christian? Trying to answer that question. And if you recall last week, if you were here, or if you can quickly skim the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 5, you're going to remember that most of that question revolved around, like, who a Christian is. Like, who are the disciples? What are their characteristics? Like, what makes them them? Who are they? Trying to answer that question. Like, what would you, what would you do? That matters. There's got to be a correlation, Right? I mean, we expect there to be a correlation. There seems to be a correlation in almost every other area of our lives. When we see what something is, we tend to anticipate what it's going to do. And when we see something and get a really clear, like, perception of what it is, it becomes really awkward to us when what something is doesn't carry over into what it does. Those things are correlated. They matter. I'll give you an example. I'll tell you what. Tis the season. So I'll give you a football example. Like, when it comes to competition in sports, I am a football player. I'm wired. That's my disposition. Okay? Spent 14 consecutive seasons, falls of my life, playing football from the fall I turned 7 to the fall I turned 21. And from the time I hit high school until I graduated college, like, it was bigger than just the fall. It takes up, like, lots of parts of my lives. A lot of these guys here know that and get to go through that right now. Right? So it, it defines a lot of our lives. Like, it's, it kind of becomes who you are. I am a football player. I tend to approach sports and competition like I'm playing football. That's who I am. And that creates a problem when I try to do other things. For example, I love playing basketball. I've always enjoyed playing basketball, really, like since I was a kid. But my challenge is I don't do a good job of playing basketball like I'm a basketball player. So uh, when I play basketball, at times in my life where I played organized basketball, it was not unusual for me to have more fouls than points. Because I wasn't in the game long enough to get enough points to outweigh my fouls, right? Those of you, there are some of you who can attest that I still struggle with that to some extent. And there are others of you who can attest, like, I'm a much better basketball player now that there typically aren't referees. Like, I'm way better at basketball when there aren't referees around, right? And then, like, or you could just go, like, what, what happened there, though? Like, is I am a football player, and I tried to do something else. And when I tried to do something else, who I am ended up bleeding through and rising up to the surface, and it caused problems. Or just think six, eight weeks ago, whatever it was, when I had to stand up here and try to explain to you why I had a black eye from our church softball game. But it's not that hard to understand, right? Who I am managed to resurface while I was trying to do something else. I still have this wiring in my body. I've not been able to reconfigure myself that when I anticipate I'm about to have a head-on collision with somebody at a high rate of speed, like I drop my shoulder. That's what I do. There's an alarm that goes off in my head that says, hey, Thomas, somebody's about to be the hammer. Somebody's about to be the nail. You still want to be the hammer. Just remember that, right? I can't, I can't unwire that in myself. It, it's who I am. And so when I get in that situation, who I am continues to resurface, and it reflects itself on what I do. So there's definitely a correlation between who I am and what I do. The same is true of you. The same is true for everyone. Jesus understands this. And because Jesus wants to highlight this correlation between who we are and what we do, that then is the reality that's responsible for the seamless transition between verses 5 through 12, which are about who we are, like who is a Christian, and then the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. But what do Christians do? Yes, this is primarily about who you are, but who you are is never very far disconnected from what you do. 
Let's read uh, our text this morning. We'll be in verses 13 through 20, and then we will pray, and then we will dig in just a little bit. Uh, Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. It's the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whatever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, as we take up this text this morning, and as we consider who we are and what that's supposed to look like in our lives, Lord, I pray that you would give us grace to see it clearly. Lord, I pray that we would just continue to realize uh, the importance of being reconciled to you through Jesus Christ. And Lord, that this morning we would learn that that means very particular things for us and how we live. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I must say, um, we're into this thing a few weeks now, so I'll just throw it out there. I'm really enjoying the Gospel of Matthew. It's a good time. Uh, I love preaching. I said that a lot last week. But there are just certain genres and books of the Bible that are really fun to preach. And for me, the Gospels are one of those. But as we get into Matthew, I've said this time and time again, I'm really looking forward to Matthew, the part we'll get into Jesus' teaching. I understand we started that a little bit last week. You got that? You got the Beatitudes? Hard to say that's not Jesus' teaching. But this morning we get to a a text that what I'm going to say is like classic Jesus' teaching. Like when I think about Jesus' teaching, I think about verse 13. Jesus used uh, figures of speech, imagery, metaphors in his preaching ministry like they were going out of style. And this morning you get your first like true blue metaphor in the Gospel of Matthew. What I'll remind you of is that a metaphor is one of those things that's comparing two things, but it's not using those connecting words to draw out that connection. It's just saying this is this. So let's try it. You are the salt of the earth. So it's in comparison between you, or really y'all, the Greeks y'all. So he's talking to his disciples, you remember from last week. Y'all are the salt of the earth. And so he's trying to say something about discipleship. Let's make a comparison about what it is to be a disciple and compare that with what it is to be salt. So let's think about salt for just a minute. Salt's a very useful thing. We know that even now, right? Salt continues to, like, it gives us flavor. Why do you like salt? Some of you are those type of people who put salt on things before you taste the things. That's fine. You just know you like salt. I don't have a problem with you doing that. Salt is flavorful. Salt's also fairly nutritious. It's good for you. You need a certain amount of salt in your body. Some of us have too much, but you need a certain amount of salt in your body. You've got to have enough sodium to regulate fluids and control a lot of stuff in your body. It's important. It matters. It's nutritional. Salt also is a preservative. Even now, that's still the case. Brother Gene made a very astute observation the other week regarding the uh, official hydration beverage of Grace Chapel Baptist Church, which is, by the way, if you don't know, Prime. Right? We're a Prime Church. We drink Prime around here. And what he noticed is that if you go to the store and you pick up a packet, the like little box of Prime that's got the packets in it mixed with water, like they have way more sodium in them than if you go to the store and you buy a bottle of it. You know how that is. 
right? Because the stuff in the packets has to sit on the shelves and has to be preserved in a way that the stuff that's already in the bottles doesn't have to be preserved. You have to preserve it differently. So guess what they do? They put more salt in it to preserve it. That's how that works. All those things are true for us right now in 2023. Like salt still tastes good and we still need salt and salt still preserves things. But if that's true in 2023, I just want you to think about how much truer it was for the people who initially heard Jesus. These are people who can't go to Food Lion or Walmart and stand on the spice aisle and look at 200 different options how they can custom fit the food they're trying to make to exactly what their taste buds want. They can't do that. In the first century, if you want to add salt to something, um, if you want to add flavor to something, you add salt to it. And that's pretty readily available. It's kind of the gold standard. Like, if you want something to taste good, we probably need some salt. So salt's like their go-to for flavor. Salt also, again, these aren't people who have all the nutritional options we have. Me and you have running water. We got supplements. We can go to the doctor and they can say, take this, eat this, don't eat this, do that. Like, all that's there. In the first century, like, salt is like a big deal in terms of, like, how we're going to take care of ourselves, a basic nutrient that we need to survive. You can't get some of the medicines that we can get. So these are people who have all these needs and they're able to meet them through salt. There are also people who don't have refrigeration options. Right, So the choice back in the day at this point in time, if you want to preserve something, like you want to keep it, your choices are uh, you can eat it right now or you can put salt on it or you can let it go bad. That's what you're working with. So when Jesus tells these people, you, y'all, like you disciples, y'all are the salt of the earth, they're in a great position to understand that's a really big deal. Like salt matters. Like salt's important. Salt's doing a lot of things that we need it to do for us. Salt matters. Big deal. Salt of the earth. And so the implication being, hey, you know what? If the earth, if the world is going to have flavor, it's going to be through people like you. If the world is going to be nourished and preserved, it's going to be through people like you. Like y'all are playing a very important role in the earth. This is what Jesus is telling his followers. However, all of that hinges on like one really important factor. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall saltiness be restored? For the salt to do its job, it's got to be salty. Don't nobody need unsalty salt. What do you do with it? If you've got salt that ain't salty, it's no better than not having salt. So what you are is salt. Here's the metaphor. You are salt. But if you don't look like salt, you don't act like salt, you don't do the function of salt, who are we supposed to do that salt? So who you are, salt, is supposed to correlate to how you act or what you do or how you live. And where it doesn't, Jesus is saying, that's not real helpful. Which leads him to finish the rest of the verse. This salt is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And you're like, whoa, Jesus, wait, Jesus, this is a big deal, Jesus. This is the first century, Jesus. We can't, like, easily replace this stuff. I thought you just said salt's valuable. Like, didn't Thomas spend all this time trying to convince me salt's a big deal? Like, yeah, if it's salty. If it's not salty, what are we supposed to do with it? So Jesus is just clearly communicating to you that if we have unsalty salt, it can't help us. And there comes a point in time where we stop treating unsalty salt like it's salt. Like, just be done treating it like what it is because it's not functioning like what it is. So Jesus is not trying to give you a big lecture on salt because he's a salt connoisseur. Like, again, he's trying to teach you about discipleship. This is a metaphor. And his point is, a disciple is going to be a disciple. A disciple better do what his master does or act like his master 
acts or lives like his master lives. And if we don't do or act or live like the master lives, at some point in time, we've got to start asking the question, are we really a disciple? That's Jesus' point. There comes a point in time where you look at salt and say, you know, it ain't real salty. We're going to stop treating it like it's salt. The same thing's true with a disciple. There comes a point in time where nobody cares what you label a disciple. If you consistently aren't acting or living in accordance with what it means to be a disciple, we're going to stop treating you like you're a disciple. It kind of makes sense. So you are the salt of the earth. This unsalty salt can't help us. How in the world will we restore its saltiness? We can't do it. It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Jesus has absolutely no available categories, none. There's no categories for him where you just call something a thing or you put a label on a thing, and that just makes it so. You know, the world we live in is like that, right? Like the world we live in right now is like we want to be able to create our own labels for ourselves, and then we want to make everybody else treat us like we really are that thing, whether we act like that or not. That's the world we're living in. Jesus doesn't have those categories. I trust that you understand that's ridiculous. Like, I trust that you also operate, like, in that, in that world where you realize some of the ridiculous things that are going on around us. I would go out on a limb and assume that everyone here is pretty much with me in saying, you know, it's kind of ridiculous when you see a man, like, say, self-identify as a woman, and then from now on, the rest of the world has to treat that person as if that's so. Like, that's ridiculous, right? And even the other, even like the people who are trying not to act like it's ridiculous end up not taking that to its logical conclusion because they realize some of the consequences are ridiculous. But what I just want to point out for you, maybe you can resonate with me, like I have been that ridiculous before. I've acted that, that ridiculously before because I vividly recall a time in my life where I tried to hold myself out like I was a Christian while I was in the middle of not living like I was a Christian. So I said I was, I wanted you to think I was, I tried to carry myself like I was, I expected people to act towards me like I was, and a lot of them did, and a lot of them let me get away with it, and a lot of them let it, let it slide, but it doesn't change the reality that my label didn't change my status, like me calling myself a Christian didn't make it so, or the people around me acting like I was a Christian didn't make it so, no, at the end of the day, like I actually wasn't, and so I can label myself whatever I want, or I can tell people to treat me however they want to treat me, like at the end of the day, if I was lost, I was lost. Maybe some of you are in that boat. I know a lot of heard your stories, like a lot of you are in that boat. That's one of the big disadvantages to being in the Bible Belt, as we don't tend to think about conversion as a supernatural act of God where we actually have our desires and our hearts reoriented to seek the things that are of Him. No, a lot of times, that's what the Bible says, but a lot of times we tend to assume, oh, Christianity is just one of those things, you're kind of born into it. And like, we're just going to assume that the people around us are Christians until they give us a really, really, really good reason to believe that they're not. But brothers and sisters, that, that's not how it works. The question that we got to ask this morning is not, do you look like salt? Do you feel like salt? When you woke up this morning, you're like, I'm a salty person. That's not, those are not the questions that we're trying to ask. We've got to ask the function test. If you're here this morning and you're confused, you're saying, I don't know, like if this thing has really transitioned in my heart, where I've got a heart that's been born again, like I love Jesus I treasure Jesus. I'm pursuing Jesus. I don't know if that's ever happened to me. I don't know if that supernatural act of conversion has occurred to me. This is all you got to ask. Like, could you pass the salt test? Not the do you look like salt test. Not do you have the label salt written on your test. But are you salty salt? Because Jesus looks at this salt and this metaphor that he's, he's laid out for us. And he says, it looks like, like we called it salt. It looks like salt. 
But here's how we know it's not salty salt. It doesn't function like salt. It doesn't do the things salt does. It doesn't have the flavor. It doesn't provide the nourishment. It doesn't preserve anything. So brothers and sisters, we can just ask ourselves that question. Do we pass the function test? Not do we look like we do, not do we look like Christians, not do people around us think that we're Christians, but like, are we actually Christians? Do we do the things Christians do? Do we live like Christians live? Which is back to Jesus' root question, what does it mean to be a disciple? You follow me. What does it mean to be a Christ follower? You follow me. What does it mean to be a Christian? You follow Jesus. So we're trying to get what we do lined up with who we are. And the thing that I would point out to you is it's impossible for it not to. What we do always lines up with what we are. And sometimes figuring out who we are, the easiest way to do that is to ask, what do I do? <laughs> what do I consistently do? Maybe that's who I am. So who are you? Who is your master? You do follow your master. You definitely do. We all do. The question we got to answer is who is our master? What do your actions say about who you actually are? Are you actually a person who loves and treasures and lives for Jesus, are you just a person who wants to look like you love and treasure and live for Jesus? You don't really care if you are or not. Who are you? Jesus keeps running with the same imagery, new metaphor. Same point, slightly different variables in the situation. Verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Jesus' point in this kind of new, uh, new way he's cast this metaphor, he's highlighting here distinctiveness. There's something distinct. Like he was saying with salt, like how do you know salt? It's salty. That's how you tell when you're dealing with salt. When salt is salty, like if it tastes salty or if it provides the nourishment that salt provides or if it preserves things the way salt preserves things. That's how we know we're dealing with salt. So how do you know you're dealing with light? What is light? Let's define light. Well, it's not dark good place to start. It's the opposite of darkness. It stands in opposition to darkness. It's in direct contrast to darkness. It can't coexist with darkness. If darkness is the state that prevents us from seeing, light is the state that enables us to see. That's what light is. And so it's very hard to confuse light and darkness. You don't get those two things mixed up in your, in your minds a lot. Light is very different than darkness. And so you know light when you see light because light has the characteristics of light. Kind of like salt has the characteristics of salt. That's just, this is Jesus' point. This is very distinct. Why is it so distinct? Why is this whole discipleship thing so distinct? Well, again, just cast your mind back to last week. Remember the walk we made through the Beatitudes. Remember how so consistently we just said, there's a reason the world can't see this. There's a reason that the world doesn't get this. Because the world, if the world lives in darkness, doesn't have in their, in their identification, their fact, the way they're parsing out what the good life is, what does it mean to be blessed, what does it mean to be happy, they've never factored in God. And since they've never factored in God, they've never committed to live life unto God, they can't see. So they're in darkness. They're, they're blind. So what are we supposed to do? Well, we're supposed to be distinct, set apart. And as we have this, okay, I'm going to live my life unto God, we will be a distinct people, and so we will be the light of the world or the light of the earth. And even these people who live in darkness and are encased in darkness and have never factored God into their worldview and what does it mean to live the good life, well, hopefully they catch glimpses of what the truth is through our lives, the light of the world. Distinct, not dark, different. City set on a hill, cannot be hidden. 
Jesus' sole point in saying city set on the hill cannot be in like he's getting at the whole idea of distinctiveness. A city on a hill is distinct. It cannot be hidden. What he's saying is you don't look at a city on a hill and mistake it for something else. And that's what he's saying about the Christian life. Who we are, verses 1 through 12, has to show up in what we do. The rest of the Sermon on the Mount. If we are Christ's follower, that means something for how we live. And one of the things it means for how we live is that we be a distinct set-apart people. So being a Christian is not like being a little bit taller tree in a forest of other trees. It's not like being a little bit different shade of a rock on the side of a mountainside. It's not like being a little patch of clear water in the midst of like a dirty sea. No, that's not it. Like it's like being, we're in the Sea of Galilee, we're looking at the mountains around us, and it's that city up there set on the hill. And I can't confuse it with anything. Because it can't hide. It could not possibly hide because it's distinct. It's different from what's around it. Nothing like what's around it. That's what it is. Distinct. And it stays that way. That's what it is. And so it does certain things. And we know it by what it does. It stands out. It doesn't look like trees. It doesn't look like a mountain. We get it. Distinct. And we get to that really confusing, strange issue that Jesus is going to draw in verse 15, like when things that are certain things try to act like they're different than they are, it's really confusing. If you try to hide light or you try to hide a city set on a hill, it looks pretty silly because you can't hide it. So verse 15, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. Of course you don't light a lamp and put it in a basket. Because the point of a lamp is to give light. So why would you, like, create light from a lamp and then try to hide the light, try to cover the light up? Nobody would do that, especially at this point in time, because we're not even talking about, again, we're not talking about a modern lamp. You, def- you wouldn't do this with a modern lamp, though, either, because let's be honest, modern lamps are pretty finicky. I don't have any problem telling you that. I, like, I have a hard time with lamps sometimes. I have enough self-esteem to tell you I have a hard time with lamps sometimes. Because you walk up to a lamp and you're like, where's the switch? Is it, you know, is it in the shade? Is it on the body of the lamp? Is it on the cord that's on the floor? Like, where do I put this thing on? If it's up in the shade of the lamp, is it one of the things that, like, push it in and pull it out? Or, like, do I twist it? If I twist it, how many times do I twist it? Lamps can be difficult. I have no problem telling you that. I've about come to blows with some lamps before. I'm a football player. If a lamp gives me a hard enough time, I'll do what I got to do, right? But modern lamps are difficult enough. But the lamps that Jesus is talking about are vastly different than those. These are lamps we got to go buy oil for, and we got to put the oil in, and we got to light it on fire and let it burn. And even when it burns, it doesn't give us near as much light as those modern finicky lamps. So if we're going to work to create light in this lamp, and we're going to make this lamp be a light for us, why would anyone go through the effort to get the lamp going to cover it up or to try to hide it? Of course you wouldn't. You would put it on a stand in the middle of the room so that it can act in accordance with what it is. It is a light source, and what it does is give light. So we want to position the lamp in the best possible way so that it can do, it can act in accordance with what it is. If it is a light source, we want the thing to produce light. So we don't light a lamp and then go and run and cover it up. And then Jesus says, again, metaphors going. Is it? He's not, it's not because he wants to talk to you about lamps. Verse 16, in the same way. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 
very simple command here. Let your light shine before others. That is the command part of verse 16. That's not new. That's what we've been saying all morning. We just want to act in accordance with who we actually are. If Jesus has spent all week last week saying, you know what really, like, you know what the first foremost foundational aspect in Christian life is? That you would be this type of person. To have these characteristics. Like, this is who you are. This is your disposition. This is what's going on in your heart. Like, that matters. Be that person. And now he's saying, act in accordance with being that person. This is who you are, and so therefore this is what you do. And if you are someone who's like salt, you are someone who's like light, you are someone who's like the city set on the hill, well, what you're supposed to do is let your light shine. You would not come to Christ to then cover up the fact that you've come to Christ. You would not say, my goal in being a Christian is to be a secret undercover Christian. Like, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Not the nature of who we are. So let your light shine. What is new here? What's the very new reality that we get in verse 16? Is the motive of all this. Let your light shine before others so that, here's the reason, here's the reason we want this to happen, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Brothers and sisters, the reason we're called to be distinct, the reason we're called to be salty salt and light-giving light in the city that's set on the hill that cannot be hidden, it's not about us. It's not so that people would look at us and think that we're distinct or think that we're different or think that we're really special people. Like, no, it's all aimed at God. And so when we live in accordance with who we are, who we are, verses 1 through 12, and when we live in accordance with that, we are the light to the people around us who may be living in darkness. And our hope is that the people who are living in darkness, who've never factored God into how they're looking at the world or their vision of the good life or what it would look like to be blessed or happy or to be congratulated, when we live as light before those people in darkness, the hope is that they will look and catch a glimpse of the light and say, you know, I would kind of like to be able to see too. There's something going on there I would kind of like to have too. And the hope is that through the Christian life, live faithfully, people in the darkness would see it and say, I want that. And in saying I want that, they would say, I'm going to seek God. I'm going to strive to live my life unto God. And in striving to live their life unto God and factoring God into their vision of what the good life is, what it looks like to be happy, what it looks like to be blessed, they would actually turn, put their sin down, follow the Lord. Guess who gets the glory there? He does. God does. It's not about me and you. Me and you are being commanded to act in accordance with who we actually are. And the whole point of that is that it's aimed at God. So that a world that doesn't know God might come to know God because they interact with us, his ambassadors. We don't get the praise for that. We don't get the glory for that. He does. Our whole lives aimed at God, lived unto God. I hope that you haven't walked away from this 13 through 16 section with me thinking that I've handed you an excuse to be weird card. I've not done that. Again, that's not the point of our distinctiveness. We're not to be distinct for the point of being distinct. We don't want to be obstinately weird. We don't want to be cantankerously weird. Like, that's not our, that's not our goal. Our goal is not to be uh, so serious that nobody can ever see our joy because that's not a helpful type of weird. Our joy is to not have so much levity in our lives that we can never be serious because that's also an unhelpful type of weird. Like, no. The, the type of distinctiveness that Jesus is asking us to live out in these verses is a very natural, organic distinctiveness. We don't have to manufacture it. If we would just live in accordance with who we actually are, you don't have to worry. You will be salty salt. You will be light giving light. You will be the city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Because who Jesus called you to be last week is 
very distinct in and of itself from who the people around you are. So I would actually go so far as to say, don't be weird. Stop being weird. We can just live our lives unto the Lord. And as we actually commit to live our lives unto the Lord, we will be light and salt in the city set on the hill to the people around us who have not yet come to Jesus. Now, we've obviously arrived at a transition. If you've got a Bible that has headings in it, you can see that really clearly. So what we're going to do with this transition is I'm going to have to just address the fact. You could be sitting here this morning and say, you know, I'm not, I'm not sanctified enough to admit that I don't feel a little bit of tension. Like, I feel just a little bit of tension. If Jesus spent all last week talking about who we are, like who we are, so foundational, uh, who, who a disciple is, like this is all about who we are, who we are, who we are, who we are. And now he's like shifted gears and it says, and now we're really concerned about how you live. Like a disciple also lives a certain way. Like I'm just not sure that I can reconcile that. And so if you're feeling just a little bit of that tension this morning, that's okay and I don't want you to ignore it. Because if you ignore it, you're going to have to continue to ignore it for a couple more months. Because this is the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. The rest of the Sermon on the Mount is an implication of who we are and what that means about how we live. Jesus is going to be talking about how we live for a long, long time. So maybe you're feeling that just a little bit. And maybe you would like Jesus to explain, hey, why is it so important? If this is primarily about who I am, why is it so important that I also live a certain way? Jesus, could you help me understand why it's so important that I live a certain way? Sure he can. So let's let him do it. Verse 17, hey, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus does something very interesting here as he starts this new section of the discourse. He anticipates some friction. So he knows, and you know, like a bunch of things he's going to say in chapter 5 are going to rub a little bit. They're going to rub in particular with the way that the people around him were interpreting the law. So what he wants to do on the front end, before he gets into this is all, it's say like, hey, I want you to be really careful to hear what I'm not saying. So I'm going to start by saying, I've not come to abolish the law and prophets. It's really just helpful tidbit to you, maybe, if you're anything like me. Like, sometimes you say things that cause friction, and maybe we could all do better if we would just, before we say them, say, hey, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying that. So Jesus does that. Jesus knows he's about to say something that causes a lot of friction over the course of the rest of this chapter, and as we get into the other chapters as well, like, he's going to cause friction. And so what he wants you to know from the outset is, look, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets. Like, what I'm doing is not contrary to the Old Testament. I've not come to overthrow the Old Testament. Law and prophets is shorthand for the Old Testament. That's what, that's what he's talking about when he says that, the Old Testament. So I'm not coming to do something that's not in continuity with the Old Testament. What I'm actually coming to do is to fulfill them, the law and the prophets. Like, I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. Now, over the course of Matthew, I'll spend a lot of time arguing uh, that Jesus has fulfilled the law and the prophets in many ways, right? Jesus has perfectly kept the law and the prophets. He's perfectly kept the Old Testament. He's actually perfectly fulfilled all the prophecies that the Old Testament said about what he was going to come and do as the Messiah. All that's true. He's fulfilled this whole ceremonial part of the law, the sacrificial system, which was aiming at him, this mediation system with the priest, which is also aiming at him. Like, he's fulfilled all that. He's accomplished all that. He's, he's done all those things. He's fulfilled that. And I will elaborate on that in more detail when we get to a text that I'm convinced is talking about that. 
But this morning, what I'm convinced, because we're headed into the rest of chapter 5, is Jesus is primarily going to fulfill the law by telling them what it means. I've come to give the full sense of the law. I've not come to overthrow the law and the prophets. I've come to bolster the law and the prophets. I'm not coming to cheapen the law and the prophets. I'm coming to deepen the law and the prophets. This is what Jesus means by fulfilling the law and the prophets. He's actually going to teach it and teach the full sense of it, which is going to have a rub with the way that the people around him, the religious leaders of the day, had been teaching it. So I'm here to sort that out. That's what Jesus is saying. I'm coming to fulfill the law and the prophets. I'm going to give you the full sense of it. Why? Why is it so important? Why is it so important that we would know with great accuracy what the law and the prophets are teaching us, what the Old Testament is saying? It's like, why do we need to know that? Verse 18, 4, or because. Here's why you need to know that. Here's why this is so important. Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished, because the law is not going anywhere. That's his point. The law is not going anywhere until it's all accomplished. And you say, well, that's a strange thing to say. And I would say to you, well, some of it's been accomplished. <laughs> so, so, you know, you say, well, Thomas, we don't sacrifice anymore. Right, because Jesus has accomplished that, which says we don't need to continue to make sacrifices anymore. The whole thing was pointing to him. Thomas, we don't go to a priest anymore. Right, because Jesus has accomplished that. Jesus has actually bought you direct access with God. That's been accomplished. That's there. That's true. Uh, Thomas, this whole, like, Jew-Gentile thing, like, what about, what, about, what about shrimp? Thomas, you eat shrimp? What about pork? Thomas, you eat pork? Yeah, and I'll, I'll eat them both in the same dish if I want to. Bacon-wrapped shrimp. That's been an absolute Jew's worst nightmare, bacon-wrapped shrimp. But here's the point. Why, why is that accomplished? Like, why is that fulfilled? Why, like, why, why, are we, why, why can Jesus say the law's not going anywhere and that also we can do that now? Like, what's going on with that? Because the dividing wall of hostility that was created to make these Jews look distinct from these Gentiles has been torn down in Christ Jesus. What Ephesians is teaching us. So that's been accomplished. But what Jesus wants you to catch and what I want you to catch and what he's going to spend a little bit of the rest of this chapter talking about is there are aspects of the law that are not going anywhere. There's these ceremonial parts. There's these ritualistic parts. Got that. That's been accomplished. But brothers and sisters, the law is a reflection of who God is. The law is telling us something about who our God is, what is his character, and Jesus' point in saying this isn't going anywhere is that there are lots of parts of this they really matter to you, and they really matter to you right now. And they're not going anywhere until the world is gone. And when the world's gone, we won't need them because we'll be in the presence of God. So it's not going to depart. It's not going away. He's not coming to abolish it. It's not going anywhere. Not an iota, not a dot. There's the smallest marks you can make in the Hebrew alphabet. They're not going away. None of that's going to disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. What's this mean for us? Verse 19, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He's talking to the disciples. Again, remember that's his primary audience. That's why you end up getting an internal judgment here. 
least in the kingdom of heaven or greatest in the kingdom of heaven because, again, this is primarily about who we are. And so if we are people who have put our trust in the Lord Jesus and have been born again, we don't have to worry about being cast out of the kingdom of heaven, right? That's not, that's not what we're uh, talking about. The kingdom of heaven will have people in it, and people, the kingdom of heaven will have people in it who are saved, and there will be some saved people who are poor teachers. But guess what? They won't be rewarded for their poor teaching. That will not be commended. There actually will, will again, be a rebuke for that. So you can't say, well, you know, I'm fine. I'm, not, I'm just not going to apply myself to this or whatever. I'm fine with being least in the kingdom of heaven. And I just want to say to you, if that's you, if you read this that way, like, look, you can't hear Jesus say, I don't delight in what you're doing and keep doing it and say, I'm in the kingdom of heaven. If that's, you, if that's your attitude towards this, like, you're not least in the kingdom of heaven. You're not in the kingdom of heaven. You don't love Jesus. <laughs> so when Jesus says, this is not what we want to reward, like, this is not good. This is, you cannot teach people to relax the law of God and think that I'm okay with that. Like, brothers and sisters, don't do that. I hear that really clearly. But he's talking to his disciples, and what he's saying is, I, I have no desire for you to minimize God's character. I have no desire for you to cut corners on God's character. I have no desire for you to hide the morality of God when you communicate the gospel to people. These are going to be people who are going to go out and teach. And I'm telling you right now, don't cut corners. Don't round off the edges. Like, tell people God is who God is because the law is an accurate reflection of his character. Don't be ashamed of it. Don't hide from it. It's not going anywhere. The dots and the iotas are never going to be erased. This matters. So it matters how you live because the law is telling us who God is. So don't come around and try to negate the law. Actually, what we're going to do is fill up the law. And the one who tries to minimize who God is will not be rewarded at all. How you live matters. Verse 20. For, how, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, that's what we call an external judgment. We're talking about greatest and least in the kingdom of heaven. Rest assured, verse 20 people, people who don't live in accordance with the word of the Lord in verse 20 are people who are not in the kingdom of heaven. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. How you live matters. <laughs> not because it earns your way into heaven, because it says something about who you are. So let's just pause here for just a second. Maybe, I don't know how clear your picture is on the scribes and the Pharisees. You're going to have a lot of time in Matthew to clear that up and deepen your understanding of who those people are because Jesus is going to talk to them a whole, whole lot. When we think about the scribes, like these are the most learned people in the law in the first century. Like a Jew would look at them and be like, those are the smartest, most literate biblical scholars we got. And Jesus says, if you're not more righteous than them, you're not getting the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees, again, the Pharisees were considered the most the people who most rigorously observed the law and all the little systems they put up to guard the law, they're the most rigorous people when it comes to law that they had ever seen in the application of the law. Like, and Jesus is saying, you've got to be more righteous than them. The challenge is, the scribes and the Pharisees had a problem with who they were. Not what they did. What they did was fine. The scribes took the law seriously. They took the law super seriously. Here's the scribes' problem. They took the law so seriously that they missed the forest that they were in because they were busy examining the bark on the trees to try to figure out how many miles they could walk on the Sabbath without breaking it. So they missed it. They were so convinced it was about what they did that they stopped caring about who they were, who they are. 
and therefore they trusted themselves and never trusted Jesus, and therefore they could never enter the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees are the same way. The Pharisees, their problem wasn't that they didn't do the right thing. They did plenty of the right things. They tried to do the best things to the best of their ability, but because they were so focused on what they could do, they never got the fact that we can't trust ourselves. They never became poor in spirit. They never became meek. They never did any of the things that we saw last week. They had a who we are problem. And so since they were not a people who could humble themselves, since they were not a people who would stop looking to themselves for their righteousness, since they were not a people who could ever look to Jesus for their righteousness, they cannot be in the kingdom of God. And so it's easy to hear this this morning and say Jesus is saying something figurative. He's not saying anything figurative at all. If doing the right, if, if, if righteousness is doing the right thing for the right reason, understand that the scribes and the Pharisees were only focused on half of that definition of righteousness, and it was the secondary part, not the primary part. They're worried about what they did, and they got caught up, so caught up on what they did that they stopped caring about who they were. And because they stopped caring about who they were, they could never actually be righteous. Me and you actually have to be righteous. We're actually being called to live a righteous life, to do the right thing for the right reason, which is going to take heart this born again. It's going to take God changing us and giving us new desires so that we actually are salt. We actually are light. We actually live a salty life. And we actually live a light-giving life. Turns out who we are and what we do are inextricably bound to Together, The Pharisees and the scribes had an R problem, and because they had an R problem, a who we are problem, they can never enter the kingdom of God. I'm very concerned about what you do, but I do want you to be aware I'm most concerned about who we are. Being a disciple, being a Christian, being a Christ follower is first and foremost and foundationally about who you are, but who you are is never disconnected from what you do. Do And so what you do matters, not because it earns your way into the kingdom of heaven, because it is plainly saying something about who you are. So, who are you? Pray with me. Uh, Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you uh, give us so much uh, detail, so many helpful illustrations and metaphors, Lord. And so as we just weigh ourselves this morning, I pray that we would weigh ourselves and find that we indeed are actually salty salt and light giving light in a city that's set on a hill that's not trying to hide. So, Lord, for those of us who know you in this room right now, I pray that we would actually live in accordance with who we are that we would give ourselves fully to you and that we would be more and more conformed into the image of the Lord Jesus so that we really might live like a disciple. We really might live like a Christ follower. We really might live like a Christian. Lord, make that true of us. Lord, if there are those who've come here this morning who are not Christians, that's not who they are. Then, Lord, I pray that you would give them that foundational gift that precedes all others, that, Lord, you would give them a new heart, that you would remove their spirit Put your spirit in them, Lord, that they might actually desire and love the things of you, and Lord, that the rest of their lives would take care of itself. We pray that that would happen to the praise of your glory. We pray that that would happen so that there might be more lights in the middle of this dark world. We ask that you would get all the glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we're going to have just a brief uh, hymn of response.